This is the Create Love, Create Freedom podcast. My name is Allison Fisher, and in this episode, we are going to be discussing attachment style and borderline personality disorder. Um, A couple months ago, I did a podcast on daughters um, of mothers who have borderline personality disorder. And I thought it was important to kind of go back and touch on this again. Um, Again, you don't have to be a daughter and your parent who has borderline personality disorder does not have to be your mother. Um, But that is my experience. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about how attachment style really plays into borderline personality disorder, how it, how attachment styles really influence borderline personality disorder. Now, in my personal situation, I very much believe that my mother was someone who um, has disorganized attachment. Um, and I think it's important to realize and understand that there are different presentations of borderline personality disorder. So there's classic BPD, there's quiet BPD, and there's high functioning BPD. Um, and then which type someone displays may depend on their attachment styles, which they adopted in childhood. And so I I find that very interesting. Um, And I'd like to dig into that a little bit deeper. Um, But there is a very deep correlation. Some studies that I have read say up to a 90% um, connection um, in someone who, who has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder does have one of the three insecure attachment styles that they developed in childhood. And that could be anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, or disorganized attachment. So I think what this really shows is that there's a very clear correlation to the disruptions in childhood um, that then lead to some presentations of borderline personality disorder. Um, I have also very much heard that sometimes borderline personality disorder has a genetic component. Um, and you know, my mother, I believe had a mother who, you know, my grandmother had, um, maybe she wasn't, uh, you know, a full blown narcissist. Um, but she was definitely a borderline narcissist. Uh, There's things that I remember my grandmother saying and the kind of volatile environment my mother grew up in that I think really put her in a place where she developed disorganized attachment. Um, Her mother, she, my my mother didn't really have um, too many father figures growing up. Uh, A lot of them kind of came and went from the home. Um, I believe my grandmother was married uh, four or five times. And what I find to be true is that 
my grandmother was not someone who provided an environment for my mother that was safe. So the my grandmother was supposed to be the person who was safe because she was the mother. She was the parent. But she had a lot of her own emotional and perhaps psychological um, kinds of issues. And so that really put my mother in a position where she was very distrusting of relationships. And I think, therefore, she created a lot of stories in her mind that also kind of morphed into and transformed into um, something that, that really looks a lot like, um, you know, borderline personality disorder. So let's talk a little bit about attachment style and kind of adaptation strategies. Um, our parents' responses to our attachment-seeking behaviors in childhood really shape how we see the world later in life. Um, you know, if we had attachment interactions, either as infants or then throughout childhood with either two parents or a parent who was loving, uh, usually pretty attuned to our, our, our needs, both our physical needs, um, you know, our, our nutritional needs, but also our emotional needs. Um, if that parent was someone who was very nurturing, who could mirror our emotions back to us pretty accurately and didn't ask us to carry their own emotional distress then we really grew up with a sense of safety and trust for those around us. We really internalized the message that the world is a friendly place. And we trust that someone will kind of always show up for us uh, when we need them. Yet for a lot of us, um, I believe it's about half of the population, about 50% of the population. Um, we attached insecurely as a child. Um, a lot of times maybe our caregivers or our parents brought us up in a world that felt a bit unsafe. Now, this could be physically unsafe, financially unsafe, um, sexually unsafe, spiritually unsafe. It could also be psychologically or emotionally unsafe for us. Um, but it really affected our ability to interact with uncertainty in our lives, especially as we grew up. And it really affected our ability to form healthy um relationships, both sometimes with our friends and our, of course, our, our family members, um, but also intimate relationships, I have found to be a real key indicator of some attachment wounds. And when we attached insecurely, um, we a lot of times may feel unstable, um, maybe unstable, I should say maybe un able to sit with any kind of 
unclarity, like lack of clarity in communication. Um, maybe if we attach more anxiously, we need constant reassurance. Um, maybe we have some black and white thinking, all or nothing, this way or that way. You're either on this side or you're on that side. Um, maybe we feel the impulse to end relationships very quickly or distance ourselves from them when we feel someone is becoming emotionally attached to us, but also maybe even emotionally dependent on us or want a sense of interdependence. Um, even if it's sometimes a healthy level of um, connection, right? That healthy level of connection feels very unhealthy to us. It feels unsafe because in childhood, it was unsafe. That's how we learned it to be. Um, and then I think sometimes some others of us with insecure attachment might really, right, might really have a lot of despair, um, have a lot of, of challenge of anger, frustration, or fear anytime conflict arises. So, um, as we talk about, um, kind of consistently on this podcast, um, secure attachment is when we as a person, um, we have both low anxiety and avoidance. So we don't, we don't become overly anxious and we don't push people away. Um, securely attached people tend to view themselves positively and believe that they are worthy of care, worthy of being loved, being in a relationship. And they usually grow up with a supportive environment where their parents were responsive to their needs and as adults are still responsive to their needs, but they also give them that breathing space to go out and be who they are going to be. They, they give them that breathing space to go and be adults, right? And, and for the parent-child relationship to change a little bit right? More of the mentor-mentee kind of role. That's that's at least how I've personally seen it with friends who are securely attached who had secure parents. Um, yes, the child is always going to be their child, but they move into a, a different role. Like they're not there to try to dictate or, you know, dictate what the child does as an adult, but they're also not there to um, really kind of cling to the child and that the child needs to run all of their um, decisions through them. I think that securely attached people can really be described as pretty flexible, open, warm, not needing that push-pull, that clingy, um, push away kind of dynamic within their most intimate relationships. Um, I think that securely attached people don't necessarily see vulnerability as being a negative quality. They see vulnerability as opening up 
and they are able to express emotions to some degree, depending on, you know, how, how they learn to communicate as a child, um, and then refine that in adulthood. Um, but they're able to express their emotions. And when they haven't expressed them very clearly, um, they don't really, you know, they don't, they don't judge the other person. They don't take it very personally. They just try to then be more clear in their communication. Uh, someone with anxious attachment um, tends to be a person who is very high on the anxiety dimension and are more likely to have a negative view of themselves. They tend to have a very positive view of other people, but they tend to really see themselves in a negative light. Um, a lot of times, if you're anxiously attached, this means that the home that you grew up in um, for a plethora of different reasons um, really caused you to believe that you're unworthy of love and care. You're unworthy of someone deeply connecting with you in a relationship, in an intimate relationship, without you having to work very hard for it. Um, people who are anxiously attached tend to crave intimacy and approval, yet also really fear rejection and abandonment, and also tend to have a fear to some degree of commitment, although it doesn't look like it from the outside. Uh, they need the other person to commit to them much sooner than they can commit to the relationship, even though it doesn't appear that way because they appear very clingy. Um, but they are also people who also tend to fear intimacy. Um, you know, if you've really developed an anxious attachment uh, wound, it's likely because your parents um, were, or a lot of times continue to be, especially, you know, uh, further into adulthood. Um, they tend to be very inconsistent with their emotional availability, their responses, and their ability to regulate their own emotions. So they didn't teach you how to do that either. So, you know, sometimes they're nurturing and other times as their, their mood really changes or a circumstance around them changes, um, they can be very detached. Um, they can reject you, your emotions, your need for connection. They can tend to be very frigid or cold and they can tend to be fairly volatile. Um, that leaves you both as an, as a child and an adult, never knowing what to expect. So this really results in you being hypervigilant really paying attention to other people's responses. You really have to watch out for any sign of change in any of the relationship dynamics that you are around, whether that be your friends, whether that be your uh, colleagues, your coworkers, or of course, in your intimate relationships. 
So those with avoidant attachment, these are individuals that tend to be very high on the avoidance um, dimension of the spectrum and really develop a negative view of others. They tend to have a very high and positive view of themselves. Again, it's a self-preservation tool, I would say, rather than technique. It's a tool that they've picked up in order to keep themselves safe as a child. Yet they really view others very mistrustfully and so therefore from a negative view. Um, this can lessen with some kind of period of time. Um, they may let a few people in, but they'll only let them in so closely. So if you are avoidantly attached, you learned through your childhood experiences uh, in your childhood home that your parents, your caregivers could not be counted on. And you had to rely on yourself. Now that could have been for your well-being in terms of having food, um, having heat, having shelter, having parents who financially made sure that you um, were cared for, that you had clothes. Um, But it could have also been your need uh, you you know, that, that avoidance in like the emotional connection. You could not count on them to connect with you emotionally. And sometimes it's even just one parent, especially if they were to the extreme. Um, another parent may have been, you know, fairly emotional, you know, been able to emotionally connect with you, but because of the other parent's damage, it then causes you to always keep a bit of distance from the people, even that you care most about. They know you, but you've never fully let them in. Um, in these situations, you really tend to minimize or downplay your feelings, your needs, your wants, but also your painful feelings. Um, which means that you really push away and, and distance yourself from your shadow, right? We all have both a light and a shadow uh, side or qualities to ourselves. Certainly also in our um, either masculine or feminine archetypes. Um, but you really minimize yourself, your needs, your feelings, and therefore you don't look at the shadow side of yourself, which is really the avenue to to really connect wholly with yourself, be that whole, free, calm person who learns how to become more secure. Uh, the shadow quality can also very much be true in any of the um, insecure attachment styles. A lot of times you may not remember much of your childhood, or you might feel very uncomfortable talking about it. Normalizing, intellectualizing, and rationalizing painful events 
from your childhood or from your life growing up are really your coping mechanisms, a lot of your core coping mechanisms. Uh, Children really develop this avoidant attachment style when their primary caregivers are not responsive to or reject their needs. As I talked about, it, it could have been their physical needs, their financial needs, but also um, their emotional needs. So as adults, you really become very uncomfortable with emotional openness. You deny the need for intimacy, even to yourself. You place a very high value on independence and autonomy and will really do all you can to avoid feeling overwhelmed, controlled, um, or at the mercy of something else, whether, whether this shows up in your financial life. Um, it usually shows up to some degree in multiple parts of your life or all parts of your life, um, but where you you never want to feel that again because you felt those things as a child and you realized as a child that you need to protect yourself from that as well. I think that people who are avoidantly attached really recognize the value of relationships and maybe have a really strong desire for them. Um, But they have a very strong difficulty trusting others. And next, we're going to talk about disorganized attachment. So children who have developed disorganized attachment have really been for for a very long period of time, a lengthy period of time, been exposed to abuse and or neglect. Um, when it comes to abuse, the primary caregiver, the, the parent or parents were the source of this abuse, were the source of this pain and this hurt. And so this really creates an inner conflict for the child. Um, they have to use different types of coping mechanisms in order to both psychologically as well as physically make it through somewhat intact. Now, this could look like splitting and um, disassociating to cope. Uh, So if your attachment style is disorganized, you may relate to others in a very chaotic, unpredictable way. Or even, I think, sometimes perpetuate an abusive cycle. Now, that abusive cycle doesn't always have to be physical abuse or certainly sexual abuse, but it can be emotional, verbal, psychological abuse. And so... um, I think for people who have disorganized attachment, 
um, they can really have a lot of different kinds of, of symptoms, right? They may feel like they experience a loss of, um, you know, like memory loss or losing a certain like period of time in their mind. They may have experienced depersonalization, really feeling disconnected from their own body. Um, where, or they may have a sudden sense of disconnection with the world, kind of like maybe they are floating above it. Right. And this can, especially with disorganized attachment, this can lead to, um, kind of what we, what we talk about as a traumatic disassociative dimension. Um, and again, this really comes from a childhood where the the people or the person, the parent or parents who were supposed to be safe were not safe. They were not able to, they not only were they not able to care for our needs, but they neglected and abused us. So for example, um, my mother was a child who may have been abused. Um, certainly, I think on a verbal level, on a psychological or a um, emotional level. But I also think that there was a lot of neglect. Um, she had a brother who was 10 years younger than she was. And my mother said at one point, you know, she was not a legal adult. Um, and I believe this was back in the 60s. And maybe into the 70s, I'm not sure. Um, her mother decided uh, to leave her at 16 with her six-year-old brother uh, to care for him while her mother left the state, um, went to a different state to meet someone. And my grandmother did this because at that point, my mother was able to drive so she could get her brother to school. She could get to her job. Um, but this is still a form of neglect. It wasn't my mother's job to care for her brother in that kind of way. Um, especially for an extended period of time that most likely I believe, or at least I was told lasted probably 10 to 14 days. There was enough food to get, or there was enough money to get food and to get some basic, basic supplies. But my mother was suddenly thrust into this kind of role. And so again, that disorganized attachment really bled into borderline personality disorder. So we're going to go back through, um, just kind of, um, through the insecure attachment styles and really talk about how anxious, avoidant and disorganized really kind of look when it, when it comes to borderline personality disorder. So anxiously attached individuals with borderline personality disorder may relate more to the description of like the classic BPD, where the fear of abandonment and it, you know, is, is very high for them. Um, and 
they have a lot of instability in their interpersonal relationships um, in, in many, many ways. So uh, their friendships, uh, as well as their, um, you know, romantic or sexual relationships, there's a lot of instability there. When it comes to avoidant, um, the avoidant attachment style and borderline personality disorder, these folks may relate more to the descriptions of quiet BPD or high functioning BPD. Um, and in quiet BPD, you turn your pain inward and really hurt yourself rather than lash out at others. And in high functioning borderline personality disorder, you really shield your conscious and unconscious anxieties and relational wounds in a mask of normalcy. And I think it's important to realize that in both of these cases, the quiet BPD and the high functioning BPD, your deepest pain really remains buried, which again, fits quite well with avoidant attachment. Um, Both your yearnings in life, as well as your fears, remain unseen. And and that's really how you want it to be. Uh, You want it to remain unseen to others, but also to yourself. So again, that not looking at the shadow side of yourself as well. It's kind of putting blinders on and saying, you know, that doesn't exist. Um, and I, I think for people who have disorder, excuse me, who have, um, avoidant attachment, um, and BPD, they may seem to form fairly quote normally in their day-to-day life, but inside they feel really numb. Um, maybe as if they're just kind of on autopilot, everything that they do is just kind of, it's rehearsed, it's a, it's a habit that they put into place so that they could continue to feel numb. Um, and I, I think the, the emptiness, the loneliness really wears on their conscience day after day. Um, and even though they really try to suppress it, I think that they often feel like they're close to a breaking point because again, it's a lack of feeling connected to anything, to anyone on a deep level, connected to themselves, right? There's no tribe. There's no sense of belonging. Um, When it comes to disorganized attachment, as I said, They, their borderline personality disorder, in my experience with my mother, has really been um, the traumatic dissociative dimension. Um, My mother is someone who is very isolated. Um, She has very few friends. I would say almost none. 
As a child, we never had people come over to our house for the most part for dinner. Um, my mother had work friends, but they were just people that she got along with okay at work. They, she really didn't have a lot of connection to other adults outside of work. And in fact, my mother still to this day does a lot of volunteer work, but she does it with like very, very, very small children, like under three or babies. She is very nurturing with those types of kind of age groups, but is very unable to form meaningful relationships with people who are much older. Um, she has a very volatile relationship with my father. To me, it, it seems like you're constantly riding a roller coaster of her emotions. When it's when things are good and she's kind of acting like my my mother, like the the mother that's kind and nurturing and who really cares about what's going on in my life, that's kind of the high. But the lows are deep depression, constantly crying, explosive anger for no reason, like over small kind of mundane sort of things. Um I think that she, you know, we talked a little bit ago with um, disorganized attachment as having kind of memory loss, you know, kind of unexplained. But for my mother, her disorganized attachment into borderline personality disorder really looks like, like she creates a different reality in her mind. Like you can say something to her about something that just happened and she will like play it back to you and accuse you and try to shame you. And you're like, but that didn't happen. And it didn't happen that way. And it's like her mind constructs something very different. So I don't know if she personally feels like it is a memory loss and then she has to kind of fill in her own blanks. Um, and because she is so distrustful of, you know, her children, her spouse, and literally everyone. Um, so then she creates things that are much further beyond what the situation actually was. Or if her mind just kind of takes over in these circumstances, it's a lot of times very challenging to, to have conversations with her because either in the present moment or months down the road, she'll repeat something that had happened. And I'm like, but, but it didn't. It didn't happen that way. And then I keep thinking, or at least uh, for a time in, in, you know, my, my twenties and into uh, my early thirties, it was just like, am I the crazy one? Like, did I create something different in my mind? But the truth is, is that that was, um, you know, those closest to her, myself, my father, my sister, um, have that similar experience. So let's talk a little bit about healing. And regardless of kind of 
either if we know someone who um, has borderline personality disorder, maybe someone in our life, and we can see where some of their um, attachment wounding comes into play, um, and how, you know, um, maybe one of the different categories of borderline personality disorder uh, comes uh, into play for them. I think it's really important to understand that none of this was your parents' fault, like in terms of, um, you know, if your parent has borderline personality disorder, or if a sibling does, or if a very close friend, it, it wasn't their fault, right? I have very deep compassion for my mother, knowing that so much of this trauma came from my grandmother and many of the relationships that she had coming and going from my mother's home as a child. And that really shaped what my mother could could bring to the table as a parent. In many ways, she was very wonderful, um, but in many ways, she was fairly hurtful. Um, at the same time, if I look deeply at her childhood, it wasn't her fault. Yet at the same time, I also don't have to condone the way that she behaves. You don't have to necessarily say, all right, I understand that this person with BPD, um, you know, that they struggle with it, um, that it's, it's their fault. Like you can have deep compassion for that. Yet at the same time, work on putting some boundaries around that uh, person, um, around your interactions with them in your environment, especially as you become an adult and you are not dependent on them anymore in any way. Um, and for me personally, it has really been diving into my own anxious attachment. My father also attached anxiously and has done, I can see where he's done some things to heal his anxious attachment. Um, but really being responsible for you. Um, I had to learn how to create boundaries around with, you know, with my mother. I learned how to go very low contact and for certain periods of the year, no contact with her. Um, I did not take on that decision lightly, nor do I want that to be the case, but it also needs to be so that I continue to heal my own attachment wounds and that I create an environment and a tribe of people around me where I feel like I belong and create the family that I really want for the future. Create, uh, not create, but um, raise secure children. Um, and also know that those boundaries, how you're learning to deal with and cope with someone who has borderline personality disorder, I think it's important to know that even if you, you put some boundaries there, they can change. Be, be willing for those not to be flexible so that the parent or the person can step all over you, but be flexible in, in, in changing the degree, uh, the level to which, you know, um, the boundary is there. 
Um, and I think the other big thing is really understanding that you can't force anyone to grow or to change or to really work on themselves. Again, as I've shared, my mother has undiagnosed, untreated borderline personality disorder. And what's really hard for me is I know how much work and effort I've put into becoming securely attached. Um, there are still triggers and things that come up where my anxiety spikes and I feel a lot of those, those anxious attachment wounds that come back up, but I can really say, oh, okay, hold on. I see this trigger. I've, I've worked on healing from this, but the truth is we can't force anyone else to grow or change. And that's very painful because I know that my mother could do a lot of work on herself. Um, she could find a lot of relief and freedom and a sense of calmness and realize that the way that her mother treated her also had nothing to do with her. Um, it hurt her as a child, but the, the innate reasons why my grandmother did that and acted that way was not because my mother was unworthy, was not because she was bad, was not because she's defective or there's something wrong with her. Um, yet my mother also is someone who chooses not to see her shadow. So again, work on incorporating your, your shadow self into who you are. Um, this will also help you have a very healthy relationship, um, with yourself um, and help you set healthy um, boundaries around the relationship that you have with the person who has borderline personality disorder. Um, also around the kinds of people who have, you know, just some, some insecure attachment. Um, as you work on yours, they hopefully will also be able to see that there's there's been a deep change in you. Uh, one of the books that I highly recommend is by Robert A. Johnson. Uh, Robert Johnson wrote a wonderful book called Owning Your Shadow. And um, it is understanding the dark side of the psyche. And uh, this really helped me uh, he calls it, you know, kind of, uh, or I think about it, I guess, in my mind is kind of looping your arm around your shadow. Um, anytime that there are any issues in my life, anytime I try to uh, pretend that it's not there, that it doesn't exist. So for the shadow it would be those dark parts of myself, those unnamed, those things about myself that I have shame or regret or fear around, instead of saying, no, 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 they do not exist. And, and kind of push, keep pushing them off deeper and deeper into the shadow. That doesn't help me at all. And instead, I gently and slowly kind of wrap my arm around them and slowly move them into the light. 
And Robert Johnson uh, talks uh, in another book uh, that he wrote, um, which I'll give you in a minute, but he talks about transforming those shadow parts of ourselves into, into gold, into inner gold. And uh, Robert Johnson wrote another book called Inner Gold, Understanding Psychological Projection. And um, I highly recommend uh, both of those books. Uh, they're not terribly long. Um, I find that uh, all of Robert Johnson's work, to be perfectly honest, um, is is very helpful in terms of understanding and uh, really giving some good um, examples and, and tactical ways of, of growing the self. Um, if you are interested in working on your shadow self, working on healing your inner child, working on understanding your personality type, your Enneagram type, as well as your attachment styles, um, and really healing from some of the wounds of childhood, uh, please take a look at our members club. Um, it is a monthly subscription and each month there is a new topic, um, for personal growth, uh, self-discovery and self-mastery, uh, where there's a series of videos, um, that I have, um, put together and they discuss that topic, those different um, ways of healing oneself and being on that self-guided um, personal healing journey, personal growth journey. And we also have a workbook uh, for you so that you can really create lasting transformation in your life and really um, create the life, uh, the career, um, the love that you deeply desire, and that's deeply meaningful to you. Uh, you can take a look at our members club by going to our website, which is createlovefreedom.podia.com. And you can also go to our Instagram page, which is create love freedom and click on the link in our bio. So if that is interesting to you and you want to continue on your self-healing journey, um, please uh, take a look at being part of our community. Um, it has just been really wonderful interacting with the different members there and so many of the wonderful insights they have um, when it comes to working through their own wounds and trauma and allowing us to see that process and allowing us to go on that process with them as they partner with, you know, you, uh, me, as we work on healing ourselves. So until next time. <laughs>